I'll be reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you this morning. On behalf of our members and our visitors here with us, there we go. Good to see you this morning. What is the point of prayer? What's the point? I think if you've prayed long enough. If you've lived long enough as a Christian, you've probably asked that question at some point in your life. What's the point of praying? Is it just kind of a a nice meditative practice to calm your nerves? A lot of counselors now will encourage individuals to take moments of silence and meditation and prayer, if that's something that they do. And certainly there's something to that, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 talks about allowing our anxieties to be given to God within prayer and the peace of Christ subsequently coming into our hearts and into our minds. Or or maybe is it just kind of a a nice platitude that we tell people whenever they're going through difficult times? You're in our thoughts and prayers, we sometimes say. After one of the recent mass shootings, there was a hashtag and and a trending phrase that and sentence that went on Twitter and it was, we don't want your thoughts and prayers, we want action. So the idea is that if you are going to spend time in prayer, it is an act of inactivity, a choice of inactivity, a choice to kind of go into this private place where there is no real tangible connection to the actual world. Is that really what prayer is about? Just kind of this nice meditative practice that calms our nerves and that we tell people when they're going through difficult times? Or is it something more? Jesus certainly thought so. And those of you who have, I think, spent a lot of time in prayer believe that as well. Otherwise, I don't think that you would really be praying that much. In fact, Jesus said that when we're to pray, we're to pray, Lord, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer of activity. That's a prayer of saying, God, I want your kingdom to encroach on the kingdom of the world as it is. God, I want you to break into this world. I want your will to be manifested and magnified within this present world. That's a prayer of activity, the real world. And it forces upon us the question, what is God's will for the world? What is God's will, not only for the world at large, but what is God's will for the world that you experience every day? What is God's will for your family, for your community, for your city, 
for the area of influence that you have. What is God's will there? I believe that we find God's vision for the world and, and God really confronting the world in, in one of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer that we've been studying through. And which Jesus says that we are to pray, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. In Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 12. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. This, this segment of the prayer, we've been, we've been going through this series, How to Talk to God, and we've been looking at different aspects of how we speak to God, but this segment of the prayer probably confronts and conflicts with the mindset of the world more than any other. And the reason is, is because number one, it implies that I am morally in debt to someone. God, I am in debt to you and I need you to forgive that debt. And therefore, if I'm morally in debt to someone, that means that I am not perfect on my own goodness and on my own talents and by myself. And that really conflicts with the self-centered, self-indulgent world that makes the self-God and the self's desires primary. Because if I'm saying to someone else, you're higher than me, you are better than me, and I am morally in debt to you, that conflicts with that idea. That means that someone is morally superior to me and whom I am held responsible to. It also conflicts with the world because it teaches that I am expected to release, now this is important, it teaches that I am expected as a Christian to release my moral hold that I have over those who are indebted to me. Whenever someone wrongs me, they become in debt to me because they should have treated me differently. They shouldn't have sinned against me as an image bearer of God. And so they become in my debt. And, and we have this kind of moral sway over them, this moral hold that some people will even use to manipulate other people because they know that that other person has guilt. And so the prayer isn't simply, Father, forgive me of my debts, but it's also as I, dependent upon how I forgive other people, forgive my debtors. And so when I pray in this way, I extinguish any power that I have to manipulate others by guilt. I no longer have the moral high ground when I make this prayer. And that deeply goes against the grain of our culture because I am relinquishing my power as a victim. And I am offering pardon to someone who may have power over me. You see this manifested at times uh, with, in relationship to the race relations in our present culture. A good example, I think, is a couple of years back, whenever nine black Americans were killed in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. You may remember that horrible tragedy. But subsequently, the church forgave them. The church came, came out and forgave the shooter, said, we, we forgive him. Many of you maybe remember that. But Washington Post writer Stacy Patton wrote an article subsequently after that with the headline, Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. Whereas previous generations would have viewed this as something as admirable, for the church to come out and to forgive someone that had hurt them in such a way, it's now viewed as empowering the enemy to forgive in this way. 
So this entire concept of forgiving someone who has wronged me really goes against the grain of our present culture. And what it shows me is if this type of language and if this type of mindset gets such a reaction from the world, then it may very well may be the one thing that can really change the world. If it's getting such a reaction from the world to act in this way. And so what we want to talk about this morning is how when I talk to God, I talk to him with a proactive mercy in my heart. I speak to him with a proactive mercy, with a forgiven and forgiving heart. That, that's how I talk to God. And it's a central and important aspect of my conversation, of, my, of how I talk to him. Now, I want us to discuss this with remembering that Jesus says you're to pray, your kingdom come, allow the kingdom of God to be spread and to be expanded within the borders of men's hearts and throughout the world. But a new kingdom does not come into an old kingdom's territory without conflict. And so whenever God's kingdom comes into the world, and whenever I'm praying for this proactive mercy, God, forgive me, forgive me of my debts as I forgive others of their debt. Whenever I'm praying in that way, I am confronting the world. I'm in conflict with the world. And number one, I'm confronting the world within. I'm confronting the world in here. All of us experience an inner life, a world in which we engage within the mind and within the soul. And in this inner world, we assess the actions of other people, we assess our own actions, we assess the world around us. And Paul calls this the inner man in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, or the inner person, the inner self. Now, generally speaking, when it comes to the inner self, we are the tyrant, right? We're the tyrant of the inner self. No one has rule or reign there. Because of this, we quickly will excuse our own mistakes. We'll quickly excuse our own mistakes. We can justify most of our actions, and we often seek our own welfare at the expense of others. But when I talk to God, and when I plead for his mercy and say, God, I need you to forgive me of something. I need to have a debt expunged. I need to have mercy granted to me. When I plead to God for mercy, I am reminding the inner man that another king rules there. And that now I am beholden to that king. And that is not a natural thing to do. Paul says that prior to coming to know Christ, we are enemies within our mind in Colossians 1 and verse 21. And so what happens when I pray with proactive mercy and I confront this world within myself? What happens then? Well, number one, when I pray this way, Father, forgive me, I confront my inner world by reminding myself of my personal sins. Praying this way reminds me that the call to discipleship is one of humble self-awareness. In praying this way, we recognize that forgiveness is not something that I needed. Forgiveness is something that I need. It's not something that I just needed in the past and, hey, I'm good, God. I'm good with it. No, it's something that I presently, constantly, continually need. Father, forgive me. It reminds me that the greatest battle that I have with sin every day is discovered 
with the person that I see in the mirror in the morning. It's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15 when he says, This is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Did you catch that little word? For who I am. Not for who I was the foremost. Who I am the foremost. There was no point in Paul's life where he thought, I don't need God's grace anymore. I don't need God's forgiveness anymore because he was praying with this proactive mercy. This is not an excuse to sin. But it is a confession of our constant struggle with the flesh. John says in 1 John 1 and verse 8, if you say that you have no sin, you make, you, are, you, you make God a liar. And the truth is not in you. It guards us against a dangerous self-deception and a self-righteousness. And it recognizes that I need Jesus just as much today as I did yesterday. And just as much today as I did when I was first saved. It's important. Because I often, when I go out to change the world, when I go out to confront the world, the outside world that we'll talk about in a moment, I often convince myself that they are only the ones who make the mistakes, that only those on the outside make the mistakes. I would never be so misled. I would never be so ignorant. We convince ourselves. But when I talk to God, I'm reminded otherwise. Because I am no longer comparing myself to others. I am comparing myself to the one who is completely other. And so when I speak to God in proactive mercy, I am reminded of my own personal sins and I confront the world within. And number two, when I pray with proactive mercy and I confront the world within, I am re-centered on the cross. I'm not only reminded of my personal sins, but I'm re-centered on the cross. While I recognize my own sin, I am also reminded of where my salvation and justification come from. They are found within the cross of Jesus Christ. How can I pray, Father, forgive me of this debt without thinking about how that debt was paid for? How it's easy for us to lose sight of how we're actually saved. That it's not uh, by my own self-righteousness. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the cross today. To justify ourselves on our politics, on what we boycott, on who we stand with. Yet praying in this way reminds me of where I must constantly go to for forgiveness. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. It also reminds me that this gift and this offer isn't just for me, but for, as John says in 1 John 2 and verse 2, it's for the sins of the whole world. It re-centers me focusing on the truth of the cross, that the forgiveness that Jesus offered was not simply for his friends, but it was for his enemies. Luke 23 and verse 34, he looks out on the people who are crucifying him. Say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so when I pray in this way with proactive mercy, and I'm re-centered on the cross, and I'm confronting the world within, it confronts me because it reminds me that my forgiveness is not only for the people that I like, for people who look like me and who think like me and who commit the sins, the same sins that I do, but it's for even those who are against me. 
So when I pray with proactive mercy and I'm trying to confront the world within, I'm reminded of my own sins and I'm re-centered on the cross. And when I do this, I'm revived and ready to forgive. Once I have done this, once I'm honest about my own sins and my need for God's forgiveness, and once I'm re-centered on the place of justification within the cross, and I'm speaking to God in this way, it is then that I am ready to extend forgiveness to others. And this is why Jesus connects our forgiveness with the forgiveness of others. He reemphasizes it, in fact, in verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 6. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that seems like a very odd statement to us. But the reality is, is that we cannot receive forgiveness unless we have forgiven. Augustine once said that God blesses where he finds empty hands. And the whole idea was that in order to receive something, you must give something first. For example, how can you ever really receive love if you've never ever if you've never given love? In order to receive love, you must first give love. And God says that if we're going to receive forgiveness, we have to be willing to offer forgiveness. The forgiveness that he has granted us within Jesus Christ. How can you hope to receive what you aren't willing to offer? And in fact, often our unwillingness to give forgiveness is based in our own self-righteousness. It's based on this idea, well, I would have never have done that to them. Don't they know everything that I've done to them? How could they do that to me? Right? How could they do that to me? After all that I've done for them. And so often our unwillingness to forgive is based upon our inability to see ourselves for who we actually are. Sinners in the face of Jesus Christ. Sinners before a holy God. And so before I'm revived and ready to forgive, I first have to re be reminded of my own sins by praying in this way, re-centered on the cross. And that really conflicts with my inner life. That really confronts the inner tyrant that wants to justify my actions and condemn the actions of others. That wants to make it seem like I'm always in the right and they're always in the wrong that always wants to make it seem as if they're the ones who always need forgiveness, but I never do, that makes it seem as if the world is the one that's in need of mercy, but not me. And so when I pray with this proactive mercy, this mindset of proactive mercy, I confront this world within. But then secondly, when I pray with this proactive mercy, I confront the world without. As the inner world within submits to the kingship of Jesus and it confronts the reality of my own sin, it is now humbled and ready to go out into the world and to forgive those as I have been forgiven, as we have forgiven our debtors. But as we confront the world, how, how does it confront the world without? My relationship to the world, how does it confront me so that I can confront the world without? Number one, it informs our zeal. It informs our zeal. Remember at the beginning of the prayer, Lord, I want your will to be done. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come. Those are big, lofty ideas. Those are good ideas. Those are ideas that we need to be passionate and we need to be zealous about and we need to be on fire for, right? We want the will of God to be done in the world. We want the kingdom of God to come in its fullness within the hearts and the lives of men. We want the name of God to be hallowed. That's what we long for. That's what we hunger for. 
But sometimes we can get God's kingdom confused with our own. And sometimes we can forget how the kingdom of God actually comes into the world. Even though Jesus taught that his kingdom was not of this world in John 18 and verse 36, we still like to use the tactics of the world, power, influence, politics, to try and bring about the kingdom of God by coercion. Yet very few of us are willing to bring the kingdom of God in the one way that we are called to pray for, by forgiving those who have wronged us. And there is a sense in which influence and, and politics are good. And we've talked about that. But sometimes if we're not careful, those good things that can be used for the benefit of others can be turned into manipulative things in which we influence the world for our own kingdom rather than that of God. This is based on the belief, this idea of God's kingdom coming in its fullness by forgiveness is based on the belief that within Jesus and his sacrifice, we see the true nature of God's kingdom breaking into the world within the cross through forgiveness and grace. And so this concept informs our zeal about God's kingdom, that it isn't about gaining the highest positions of power, but it is about showing God's presence in our lives through the forgiveness that we extend to others. And our prayers should reflect that. Number two, it confronts the world by preserving our community. Remember that this is a communal prayer. Our Father, forgive us of our debts, our debtors. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are people sitting in the pew right now in this church this morning, maybe just a few feet away from you, who need your forgiveness? If they don't need your forgiveness today, do you think they'll need your forgiveness in the future? Do you think that you will need their forgiveness? People in this church. Sometimes the most difficult people to forgive are Christians. Because we expect so much more of them. And the reality is, is that some people who struggle the most with forgiveness are Christians. Because we think, I wouldn't have acted that way. I'm a Christian. I find it interesting that the New Testament is constantly having to remind the church to forgive each other. Daryl read Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. That's one of many passages in which Paul is saying to the churches, forgive each other, forgive each other. Why is Paul having to remind these people who are forgiven over and over again that they have to constantly forgive each other? Why is he having to tell them that? If you think about it, it's not that surprising. Because the kingdom of God, especially in the first century church, was made up of natural born enemies. Jews and Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. Different background, different culture, a different way of doing things, a different way of looking at life. And when you have two cultures that are coming together in that way, there's going to be clashes. There's going to be bitterness. There's going to be grumbling. There's going to be complaining. And Paul inserts into the midst of that, you need to forgive each other. Because the only way that we're going to preserve this good thing that we have, the only way, the only thing that keeps the kingdom of God from crumbling is the forgiveness of God. He said you have to forgive each other. I think the church forgot that this last year. 
I think that we were so quick to divide and so quick to accuse and so quick to abandon each other. The church worldwide is suffering from immense division right now. And you might not see it, but I do. And part of it is due to politics, part of it is due to ideology. And part of it is simply because we have forgotten who we are. And we have forgotten to pray this prayer. Father, forgive us as we forgive others. We must be courageous enough as the church to offer an alternative community to the vindictiveness and bitterness that we see in the world. To say that this is a place where we seek reconciliation. This is a place where we yearn for and we long for forgiveness and we work towards that. It's not easy. It's, it, it's going to be messy at times, but that's what we're working towards. That's what we try to achieve. And by this, we conquer the world. When we confront the world within and we confront the world without in this forgiving and grace-filled way, and we're yearning for that, and we're talking to God about it, and we're longing for it, he says, you overcome the world. I find it very interesting that Jesus says in John 16 and verse 33, don't be afraid, My, I have overcome the world. Do you realize that's before he's crucified? Before he's resurrected, I have, not will, I have overcome the world. I find that interesting. A lot of times when we think of Jesus overcoming the world, we think of it strictly within the context of the resurrection. And that truly is part of it, but that's not all of it. Because within Jesus, we see him conquering the world by his faith long before he was ever resurrected. He conquered the world by, by confronting the powers of darkness and refusing to allow his character to be tainted. He never reacted in hatred to those who hated him. He never became bitter, hateful, or cynical. He never used the abuses of those in power to excuse wrathful retaliation. But instead, he submitted himself as a sheep to the slaughter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Instead, he broke the cycle of bitterness, of evil, and of hate by looking upon the very people who nailed his hands to the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And by this, he overcame evil with good. Now, don't sit there in the pew and think to yourself, well, that was Jesus. That's different. He's the Son of God. If you're going to claim the name Church of Christ, then you better be willing to forgive like him. Because that is what it really means to be the church. To forgive as our Lord forgave. And we are called to this same kind of world-confronting, world-conquering faith. John says in 1 John 5 and verse 4, This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, notice that, has overcome the world. I'm not resurrected yet. You're not resurrected yet. One day we will be. But through our faith, we overcome the world. Through forgiveness and the mercy and the grace that we offer, we've refused to give in to the hatred and the bitterness and the darkness of this present age. And we confidently and hopefully look forward to a time in which grace will abound forever. As we close... And we think about this idea of talking to God with this proactive mercy and confronting the world 
within and without. My mind is brought to a man by the name of Desmond Tutu. Desmond was raised under the horrors of the apartheid system in South Africa. And after that system was dismantled, there was a lot of hatred and there was a lot of resentment by those who had been oppressed for so many years. And they wanted vengeance. They wanted justice to be done. And many of those feelings were very justified. But Desmond had a different philosophy. He believed that if it wasn't handled correctly, that what had happened in the past was going to lead to generations of bitterness and hatred. And so he created what was referred to as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in which the government offered amnesty and forgiveness to all those who came forward and confessed the evil and the violence that they had done in the past. And a lot of people were not a fan of this. But Desmond had this to say. He said, there is no future without forgiveness. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are steeped in bitterness, hatred, resentment, I want to tell you that there is no future without forgiveness. And you have no future without the forgiveness of God. Who is more than willing and more than ready to forgive the debt that you have against him and with him rather. If you stand here unredeemed and unforgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and not saved, if you haven't placed your faith in him, turned your life over to him in repentance, if you haven't confessed him as Lord of your life, been, been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, if you stand this morning unredeemed and unforgiven, then you have no future. Because it is only him. It is only his willingness to forgive the debt that you have that you can be saved this morning. Whatever your need is, why don't you come? And together we stand and as we sing.